Chin Radio 97.9 is our cross-cultural talk program. And on Thursdays, uh, uh, the program is dedicated to uh, ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution, Ernie Tennis, uh, my co-host, uh, and has been for the past uh, 80-some weeks. I know if Ernie were here today, he would have the number bang on. But uh, uh, today, as you may have read, uh, Ernie uh, Ernie's mom, uh, Mrs. Tannis, uh, passed away a couple of days ago. And uh, I had uh, the opportunity to spend some time at uh, Hulse Playfair and McGarry uh, over on uh, McLeod Street at uh, O'Connor with Ernie and his brother Ralph and his sister Janine and uh, his wife Yumna. And uh, we uh, we had the chance to to reminisce somewhat of uh, the, those wonderful times when uh, uh, Mrs. Pat Tannis uh, was with us. She was 91 years of age when she passed away, and uh, uh, just uh, want to offer our condolences on behalf of all of us here at uh, Chin Radio in Ottawa. And I know uh, Ernie uh, will look forward to uh, being back with us uh, next Thursday afternoon on the program. Uh, in the uh, in the meantime, uh, Ernie was kind enough to arrange for today's program, and uh, uh, we have back for his third visit, and I'm delighted to have Jeremy Wright back with us in the studio, and I uh, thank you for coming in, Jeremy. Well, you're very welcome. Um, what I thought uh, maybe I could start with is to, uh, since Ernie isn't here, just to... Uh, um, first of all, pass on my condolences to him on, on because I've known Ernie for quite a while, and uh-huh. I find that Ernie is an absolutely exceptional person, um, and uh, I think his mum must be very proud, and uh, he must be proud of his mum too to produce such a fantastic individual. No kidding. So, with that compliment. Um, uh, yeah. Do you want me to uh, to begin? Or, well, or? I think I think it would be nice to uh, give us a little bit about your. I know uh, the first time you paid us a visit, Ernie went through your whole uh, CV and bio, but just a brief synopsis about what Jeremy Wright is all about. Now, I know you've retired at the, at the bright young age of uh, of fifty five. Oh yeah. And, and now you're right. busier than ever, for goodness' sake. Well, that's right. No, uh, I started life in England, as you uh, everybody can probably tell from my accent, and. Um, uh, came to Canada after spending some time in uh, in Malaya and working for the United Nations and in uh, Latin America. I was uh, caught by the uh, Expo 67 and that uh, Ontario song, A Place to Stand, A Place to Grow, is right. the province of Ontario. And then uh, <laughs> there's a lot of funny stories along the way which I haven't got time to get into at the moment. But anyway, I ended up in the federal government uh, where I spent 25 years um, in various capacities in social policy, regional development, industrial policy, and so on. And uh, then the end of my career, I was lent out to the Canadian Federation of Labour as their senior economic advisor on the free trade agreement and NAFTA, mm. on the trade stuff. And then I had a, a chance to uh, go back and work into the federal government again for the Mulroney uh, government. And I said, no, I'm sorry, I cannot do that. <laughs> And so uh, they offered me an early retirement package, and everybody said, you're far too young to retire. And I said, what, retire? I said, if some idiot wants to pay me half my salary for staying away, (laughs) I'll grab grab it and run. So I did. Oh, good for you. And I, I, again, delighted to have you here. And uh, uh, we are uh, continuing our series on the economics of conflict. And, uh, Jeremy, you were kind enough to arrange to have a guest join us. And it's Richard Sanders, who uh, 
who is with us uh, from uh, COAT, which uh, stands for the Coalition to Oppose the Arms Trade. And maybe, Richard, you can tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into the meat of the program, if oh, you don't mind. Well, well um, I haven't worked in government. I can't say that. <laughs> um, I've worked against the government. That's my That's been my <laughs> shtick. Um, I studied anthropology uh, at, uh, at Trent in Peterborough and then at the University of Western Ontario. And then when I graduated, it was 1984. That was a sort of a... Oh, it was a pretty uh, stellar year for the peace movement, for the anti-war movement. There were protests going on all around the world, and I guess I was influenced by that, and I got involved with the uh, peace movement right at that point from graduating. Although my, I grew up in a, in a household of, of peace activists. My parents were involved in opposing the Vietnam War, and so I grew up in that uh-huh. milieu. Right. So I've been working since 84 full-time in the uh, peace movement. And uh, I started this organization, Coalition to Oppose the Arms Trade, and our, our first thing was to uh, to oppose this huge military trade show, this Weapons Bazaar that was at Lansdowne Park back in 89. And Remember it well, yeah. You made a lot of noise back then. Well, I'm still trying. I, I Maybe I, I've mellowed a bit in, in the last uh, 20 years, but uh, yeah, I'm still plugging but, away. But what I meant by that, of course, was that you you made yourself heard and, uh, you know, it certainly got an awful lot of media attention yeah. when, uh, when you yeah. were there, yeah. for sure. Uh, do you find trouble getting support for your cause? Well, it's always a struggle, sure. And uh, I present company... Ex- uh, not accepted or excluded. <laughs> uh, don't ter- find the uh, mainstream corporate media terribly supportive of uh-huh. the of the peace movement. Right. Um, so it's uh, it's nice to be able to to speak to people through the through the radio waves. Mm-hmm. Well, Jeremy, where are we going with this one today? Now we 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 got into the economics of conflict, the costs of conflict. Now, yeah, it's, I want to get at the costs of conflict and some of the reasons for it uh, because there's. Uh, the, situa- the global situation at the moment is not looking that rosy. No. Um, and uh, the costs are escalating above and beyond all reason. Um, so <clears throat> I thought that maybe this, this episode should deal with the, with the costs of conflict and, uh, and what are they. Sure. Um, and then the next, two, uh, so the next two segments of the show, one is the values in conflict, which uh, will further develop some of the, the ideas I'm going to share right. uh, this time. And then we'll have some of the alternatives come on as a Christmas wish for peace and goodwill between men in the new year hopefully. and beyond. Hopefully. So hopefully... Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. That, I'm, it's, well, it's up, <laughs> we can't leave it to them anymore. You no. see, it's, 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 all, it's up to us now. Um, so anyway, let's get let's uh, let me get into some of the meat of some of the things I want to say. Sure. <clears throat> uh, well, first of all, uh, I think as I said before, killing is is uh, killing people is is big business. It's huge business, and military spending, global military spending, has now increased to over one trillion dollars a year. Which seems to me, if you f- step back for a second, the Cold War has finished. Uh, why on earth are we spending all this money on military armaments? And mm-hmm. I can think, if I think for a second, there's a whole raft of things, uh, trillions of different alternatives, that where we could spend money on improving our civilizations, looking after our weaker members, healing the planet, uh, and investing in our common future. Why do we have to destroy ourselves? Why, why, why all this destructive energy goes on? Um, so, looking at the uh, costs of conflict, um, 
Oh, by the way, I'll share this story. Uh, uh, somebody once just, uh, made me a short presentation of the uh, animal medicine cards. Uh-huh. And the uh, animal medicine cards, they're the... Uh, uh, show you the energy of the of the rat and the doe and the turtle and so on, and um, uh, the one card that uh, interested me was the uh, was the coyote, the the cosmic joker, uh-huh. and the coyote has actually become quite a friend, um, and the coyote uh, laughs his head off on a neighboring field every time I do something which ties my shoelaces together and I fall flat on my face. Mm. And the, the, so I find that most upsetting. But uh, the more upset I get, the uh, the more the coyote laughs. So he's become actually a friend. And in this case, uh, I thought that the uh, development of the theme of the cost of conflict would be uh, fairly easy to do until I started getting into it. And then uh-huh. I heard the... Uh, the uh, a coyote laughing at me again. He said, ah, let me tell you. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> in answer to the question why, uh, I think that uh, the real alternatives and the costs, and the, co- the real costs and the real extent of uh, conflicts, plural, go well beyond the, the military's uh, expenditures because mm-hmm. conflicts and disputes seem to be, uh, have been with us basically since the Stone Age. Now, uh, the issues also go far beyond the issues of money and power. Indeed. Um, and I think if we're going to d- try and solve it, we have to start looking at the principles, and I want to b- I underline that word, the principles on which our civilizations are based and which also underpin our human journey. Uh, so it also became uh, apparent to me when I looked at it in detail that if we stay on the path that we're on major questions arise as to the sort of future we can expect on this highway, what I call it the highway to oblivion Um, uh, and uh, so the question also arises do we have a future at all on this path and uh, if so what is that future worth and it's so far beyond any dollar cost I can think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I think we have to approach the subject a little differently. So what I want to do this time is to uh, um, in the, uh, outline or develop the models that I put in in the first show, which sure. was suggesting that uh, the first was what I call the elemental triad, where you have three interrelated concepts. The first one is economy, uh, which is basically a local concept. It's a home concept. It's a, it means economy and thrift at the household level. Uh-huh. You have ecology, which is, comes from the same base, which is the, uh, uh, the, the system of the planet and local ecologies. And then you have the value systems or the principles that drive our behavior between, uh, to the other two. Right. And uh, this is what I want to get into in a lot more detail next time. Mm-hmm. However, uh, let's uh, take a look and see uh, um, uh, the, the, what I think is probably the biggest conflict of all, uh, which is between the greed-driven top-down systems, where a tiny few benefit at the expense of the many, uh, versus uh, uh, the... Uh, <coughs> sorry, I just... Uh, <coughs> The, uh, the top-down system and the bottom-up systems mm-hmm. uh, which survive, which drive communities. Um, and it seems that this ultimately depends where the supreme, what I would call the supreme power, exists. Uh, so let's go to, first I'd like to start off with a dictionary definition of democracy. Now, uh, 
democracy is defined in the dictionary uh, that as, quote, that form of government in which the supreme power rests with the people, ruling themselves either directly, as in New England town meetings, or indirectly through representatives. That's democracy. It's a grassroots thing. It's local, where people who are the real stakeholders in their communities uh, have the unalienable rights of deciding what is important to them and how they want their tax money to be spent. Mm-hmm. So that's basically democracy, and it was aptly expressed by Abraham Lincoln's phrase, by the, of a government of the people, by the people, for the people. Uh, and under the dictionary definition of democracy, um, it's clear that you cannot export democracy at the barrel of a gun. It's something which grows within a community, within a culture, and the planet is uh, so marvelous that we have any numbers of different cultures, in my opinion, all of whom are equally valid. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, on the other hand, uh, you're just using democracy as an excuse for something else, and that something else is usually if your hearts are filled with the greed for the riches of the land, uh, then democracy is a useful excuse or a cover for invasion. Uh, So let's um, uh, go to the next, the in-between level here, which is uh, that the government is of the people, by the people, for the people. That's democracy. But if you look at corporatism, then that is the government of the corporations by the corporations, for the corporations. And this is where you see the corporate interests and the moneyed interests coming in to uh, support their chosen candidates. Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of corporatist form of takeover, partially takeover of the intrinsic meaning of of, uh, democracy. And when we talk of, uh, you know, we talk about the the costs of... uh uh, of conflict, and we're talking initially dollars and cents, and you mentioned trillions of dollars. Uh, we can't uh, we can't neglect the human lives that are lost. And uh, just was it just yesterday, Richard, that uh, we heard six hundred and some thousand lives lost in the Iraqi war mm-hmm. because of the Iraqi right, war. Right. And uh, I, I guess, and then and closer to home, when we hear how many of our uh, uh, armed forces personnel have lost their lives in Afghanistan, and we're there on a peacekeeping mission, unfortunately. Well, and they say it uh, is well, yeah. And then all of a sudden, we're we're we're, we're getting these uh, uh, these stories. Uh, seems almost every second day now. Well, even if uh, even if killing six hundred thousand Iraqis only cost a cent, we wouldn't want it. So it's not really the the financial cost no. of it that's uh, really the biggest problem it's as like as you say it's the human cost human cost indeed mm-hmm. and it's also the the uh, <clears throat> it's the the, the uh, certainly the human cost because i think a lot of we're sacrificing our youth not in support of freedom and democracy but mm-hmm. in uh, in support of the corporate grab for middle eastern oil mm-hmm. and that seems to be the bottom line and uh, as we discussed or as i mentioned uh, prior previous to uh, to coming into the studio uh, as recently as a couple of nights ago on American television, uh, American soldiers were being interviewed and asked, well, what are you doing over here? Speaking of what's going on in Iraq, and we were just told to, to watch the, the pipelines, and just keep our eyes on the pipelines and protect the pipelines. So mm-hmm. automatically the question is raised, well, okay, is this the real reason That's you're the there main, then? The you main know? function, sure. Yeah, no kidding. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. listening to Chin Radio 97.9, Jeremy Wright and uh, Richard Thomas with us here on, uh, on Ottawa's Multicultural Voice, and uh, we're here talking about the the, uh, the costs of conflict, uh, or Richard Sanders. I was thinking of Richard Thomas, the actor from 
Oh, my goodness, it'll come to me in a minute. Uh, There's an actor called Richard Sanders, too. Uh, that's right. He was a radio on WKRP. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's right. Sorry about that, Richard. That's okay. I apologize. Uh, Jeremy. Yeah. Okay. You, uh, sorry, you caught me a little bit by surprise. Yeah. But let's just trace. I mean, what I'd like to, to, uh, to, uh, to do for the next uh, sort of couple of comments is to trace the rise of, of corporatism. Uh -huh. um, because it, it started off initially as, as uh, from the Latin cum pane, bread or bread sharing. And so you had family businesses, you had father and sons where everybody sat around the same table. And if the uh, going, if it was uh, good times, you put meat in the, in the soup and it became a stew. And if it wasn't good times, you put water in the soup and it became gruel. Uh, and, but everybody, sh everybody dined at the same table. I That's mean, right. Uh, uh, <clears throat> however, what happened in England, uh, let me go back to the 1850s, um, it was the time of Sir Walter Scott in the Waverley novels. Uh, he signed a promissory note for uh, a cousin of his. Uh, and at the time, anybody who was an investor in a corporation was totally responsible for the environment and for the people and the workforce and mm -hmm. the well-being of the community. It was a very responsible uh, position. Uh, however, uh, it was the when the print shop went bankrupt, uh, it was too heavy a, uh, a burden for him to carry, so Sir Walter Scott uh, wrote the Waverley novels and were, um, were indebted to, to him for that. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was such a public outcry in Britain that uh, that and some other economic factors led to the introduction of the Limited Liability Corporation, where the, the limited liability is another word for limited responsibility. And the, they limited the responsibility only to the amount of money that the shareholders put into a company. Uh, and they took away any responsibility for people or the environment. And see the, the, uh, and when that happened at the early stages of the Industrial Revolution, you had the rise of socialism, Fabians, the unions on the one hand, looking after the interests of people. Mm -hmm. And then more recently, as the environment becomes more important, you have the entire green movement saying that the, the environment is, is important as well. So that took place in the 1850s. Uh, now, we roll the clock forward uh, quickly to uh, World War II, or after World War Two, and what I would call the growth of fascism, which uh, uh, the, the term, <clears throat> as you probably remember, uh, basically came started in in Italy, and it was a totalitarian form of government administered by the uh, 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 the fascisti. If I, my, I'm sorry, my Italian doesn't exist, uh, which advocated the building of a highly nationalistic state recognizing private ownership except where the state decreed otherwise. And Mussolini, in his definition of fascism, suggested it's when the narrow interests of the corporations take over from all other interests. Now, in the post-war period, that was, that was the first sort of step towards modern corporatism. The, the second step took place after the, uh, again, after the post-war period with the introduction of, the, of GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is essentially a bill of rights for corporations. It's their rule book as to what they can go in and do to people and nations in their own communities. This uh, was, this notched up uh, later on with the concepts of the free trade areas and, the com and common markets and the effective disappearance of the nation-state and national economic sovereignty, which was the uh, whole uh, publicity thrust of the multinationals in the 70s and 80s, the disappearance of the nation-state, nation the uh, 
enshrined in the candid U.S. Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, and followed by the formation of the World Trade Organization, which, uh, from my sort of odd position, think it should be more properly called the World Takeover Organization, <laughs> because it allows the multinationals to come into any country, any nation, any neighborhood, um, like, for example, Walmart, mm -hmm. um, and uh, basically take over. Uh, and it allows the oil companies to go into uh, and claim, like this, what they've done in Alberta, um, that they have equal rights to all Canadian uh, res oil resources, forestry resources, water resources, everything. So, in fact, I mean, we're losing sovereignty and we're losing democracy mm. because we lose control. And um, if I go back to Adam Smith, for example, the uh, one of the uh, gurus of the, of the right wing, uh, he suggested in The Wealth of Nations... Uh, that uh, the wealth of nations actually depend on, A, the resources you have to start with and what you do with them. And he gave the example of the pin. You have iron ore, you manufacture it into a pin, you sell the pins, that's jobs and wages, and so on, and that's how an economy, a national economy grows. Uh -huh. If you give away your country to somebody else who isn't a member of that country, what have you got left? You've got left a big hole in the ground. Right. Um, so, more recently, as well, um, we've now entering, I think, you, uh, a, a final phase of this, uh, which is the recent um, legislation which was introduced by the U.S., um, which uh, uh, gives, it's the U U.S. a detainee torture act, uh, which was uh, brought in just before the House of Representatives uh, uh, recessed for the election, and what that does is it criminalize it. Uh, it uh, basically suggests that uh, anybody is a terrorist who argues with or disagrees with the president of the United States. Hmm. We're going to take a little bit of a break here, Jeremy, and uh, and, and we'll, we'll get back and we'll get an opportunity to chat with uh, Richard as well. Uh, you're listening to. Uh, Chin Radio in Ottawa, 97.9, our Thursday edition of ADR, Alternative Dispute Resolution. Uh, Jeremy Wright, uh, co-hosting uh, with us today, filling in for uh, Ernie Tannis. And uh, Richard Sanders is with us as well of uh, the uh, Coalition to Oppose the Arms Trade Coat. And I want to talk to Richard a bit about uh, where he got the idea to start this all up and and uh, what kind of uh, hurdles he had to overcome to to get this uh, to get this going we are at 12 uh, 27 and i know where the richard thomas name came from now as i as i reflect back i was thinking of the waltons remember that television show sure a peace loving family uh -huh. <laughs> there we go we'll be right back chin radio is appealing to a brand new generation Chin Radio 97.9 FM, it's not only for your parents. Big Brothers Big Sisters is an organization that focuses on matching young kids with positive adult role models. The little brothers and little sisters in our programs are between the ages of 6 and 18. Our adult volunteers are over 18 and have been thoroughly screened. 
Through our programs, we strive to give little brothers and little sisters the chance to build a positive relationship with their big brother or big sister. Together, they're able to share similar interests and engage in fun activities. If you're interested in a role model for your child or you're interested in becoming a volunteer, please call Big Brothers Big Sisters Ottawa at 613-247-4776, extension 315 or 309, or visit our website at www.bbbso.ca. Only one place in Ottawa brings you all the sounds of the world. Chin Radio. CJLL With Chin 97.9 Cross Cultural Talk with uh, our Thursday edition of ADR Alternative Dispute Resolution. Richard Sanders uh, is uh, my guest, and my co host is Jeremy Wright, who wanted to finish his train of thought before we uh, we jumped over to Richard. And yeah, because I, from him. Uh, there's uh, just one, one, one last point in, in this uh, sort of strain. Um, and, and when I started looking at the role of corporations and the extent to which corporations have taken over, mm-hmm. Um, and then, because most people think that it's the U.S. that is responsible for this whole thing, um, but when you look at the numbers carefully, you find that that the U.S. That it's the U.S. taxpayer that is, to a large extent, uh, financing this entire operation. Um, and I say somewhat un- unwittingly because at the moment the correct numbers are not there. It's not just the one trillion dollars uh, of military expenses of which uh, the US spends 500 billion a year um, if you look at the state of the US government finances according to the US financial report America's debts and commitments don't uh, total at the moment 8.3 trillion but 49 trillion dollars I mean this is a sum of money that I can't even almost begin to comprehend their their budget deficit is mm-hmm. not just two percent, two point six percent of uh, gross domestic product and shrinking, as uh, the president would have us believe. Uh, but according again to the U.S. financial report put out by the U.S. Department, uh, U.S. Treasury, it's six point two percent of GDP and growing rapidly. And the true two thousand and five deficit um, was a whopping seven hundred and sixty billion dollars. Well, you can't keep going on that path without sinking quietly into debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So anyway, the um, the thing here is that the, uh, the a lot of the armament stuff is not just being financed by the U.S. and we in Canada have, uh, uh, at the moment, under the Harper government, are playing our role. And I think Richard, you've you've done the homework on the Canadian scene and some things you want to say. So why don't I hand it over to you? Sure, and yeah. uh, okay, well, sure. Um, I guess as I was saying earlier. Uh, the, the, my entry into the peace movement was really um, this opposition to this huge military trade show, this arms bazaar that was held here in Ottawa. So right from the beginning of my activism in, in the anti-war movement, it was it was with a focus on war industries and uh, mm -hmm. war profiteering and corporations, uh, not just Canadian, but I've been focusing largely on Canadian uh, military uh, corporations. Um, so it it dovetails quite nicely with uh, with what uh, Jeremy's been talking about, and some of the things that he said. I I, I want to start with um, reflecting on some some of his comments. Like he was saying that they're talking about this one trillion dollars that that the world spends on on the military, and as you mentioned just now, half of that is spent by the United States. So if you total up all of the other countries in the world, besides the United States, that they all of them combined equal what the United States is spending on the military. Uh -huh. It's incredible. Um, and the other thing is that uh, half of the American budget, half of their entire budget goes to the military. And it's he an keeps and, and, and the president keeps going back and asking for more money too. More we see yeah, that often yeah, enough too. Yeah. Now the the, the the horrible thing about this is not just the, the terrible human uh, losses, the, the human cost of, of war. That w that we see, like you, you're mentioning, the 600,000 people in Iraq that have died since 2003. Uh. Not just the human cost of war directly from people dying as a result of war, but it's all the lost opportunities of that money. Right. You've got half a trillion dollars every year that's not going to help people. That's right. It's not going into education. It's not going into housing. It's not going into uh, healthcare. Healthcare. It's not going to help the environment. Yeah. It's going. It's completely wasted, in a sense. It's, like it's not taking, only wasted, yeah. it's actually doing harm. Right. So it's those lost opportunities as well as the direct negative effects of, of this military spending that we have to consider. And Canada being right next door to the United States, we often, you know, we compare ourselves to the United States. And I think that's part of the reason why Canadians have this, this image of Canada as if we're some kind of a great force for peace because we're right next to the Americans, which in the United States, you know, you as a government, which spends so much money on the military that compared to them, it looks as if we're spending nothing. It looks as if we have no military. In fact, the reality is that we're in the top 10 uh, military spenders in the world mm -hmm. in terms of real, the actual amount that we spend, not as a percentage of this or that or gross domestic product or something, but the actual amount that we spend, we're in the top 10 in the world. I think we're about number eight or something. And also in terms of military exports, we're always in the top 10. And in our in terms of our military exports to third world countries, to so-called developing countries, we're always in the top 10. I think we're like number seven or something. So very few countries out of the 200 countries in the world, we're all we're right up there in the top. Mm -hmm. We've always we've always done so much to help the United States in their wars, even when it appears that we're not helping. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, our biggest uh, military, the biggest uh, buyer, the biggest purchase of our purchase of our, 
purchase purchaser, purchaser <laughs> of our military goods is the United States uh-huh. by far. More than half of what we produce in terms of military equipment goes to the United States. And we have no say whether they re-export that to another country or whether they use that in whatever war they happen to be involved with that, mm-hmm. that year, that month. So we, we, we don't try to control uh, how the United States... Now, the, the Department of Foreign Affairs always says, you know, we, the Canada has, uh, you know, one of the greatest uh, control regimes for controlling our military exports and that sort of thing. But it doesn't stop us from exporting to the country in the world mm-hmm. that, that is involved in more wars than any other country. Um, so I think that the biggest obstacle that we have as peace activists, as anti-war activists here in Canada, is trying to dispel, trying to debunk this myth that Canada is this great global force for peace. When in fact, we are, you know, we're exporting military goods uh, hand over fist to the United States and have done for for decades, you know, we were selling them, uh, you know, uh, Agent Orange and stuff during the Vietnam War and it's been the same ever since. And we have this illusion, this perception, this, uh, this myth that through which we see ourselves and through which the world sees us. Can it, can, the world sees Canada as this. I think that there are less and less, fewer and fewer people are seeing us that way. I think that the illusion is starting to, starting to collapse because of our involvement in Afghanistan. I think that it's harder and harder to keep this myth uh, going. Let me ask you, if I may, like, yeah. what, what would you say to those people who are uh, who are now saying, uh, well, maybe it's time we uh, pulled our forces out of Afghanistan. Like, we went there uh, as peacekeepers, and now we're getting involved, and we're, we're being shot at, we're, we're, uh, we're bringing home our dead. Uh, I mean, should we not still be there in, 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 uh, in some way to help out, or would you rather see us pull out completely? Oh, absolutely, we should be pulling out completely. Really? Yeah. Um, <coughs> There's a number of, of um, illusions and myths about the about the war in Afghanistan. First of all, people have this perception now that there's a democracy in Afghanistan and that we've set up this democracy. Well, we have set up a f- kind of a, a, a phony democracy there. What's happened is that uh, when the United States invaded in, two th- in 2001, right after 9-11, 9-11 gave them the, uh, the pretext for, for in- invading um, Afghanistan, but the way they did it on the ground was through allying themselves with the Northern Alliance, mm-hmm. who were basically a, a terrorist organization that had ruled the country from 92 to 96. And in Kabul alone, 50,000 innocent people were killed by these people over the period of those four years. That was just in, in Kabul alone. Um, there, I mean, we're, we're talking about a, a government that's been set up there where, where uh, warlords and drug dealers basically are now running the country. President Karzai has appointed to his cabinet uh, the most notorious warlords um, from Afghanistan's history. And they're all now holding the top posts in, in, the, in the government, the, you know, the economic posts, the, the military posts. So we've helped in our own way to make that regime change. They, they've created, they've uh, created a new regime there. And even the... Um, this idea that uh, you know women are free now in Afghanistan. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I guess three weeks ago now, there was a the uh, the youngest uh, Afghan MP was here in Ottawa. She had spoken at the NDP convention in Quebec City, and we got her to come in come to Ottawa mm-hmm. right after that. And she said basically there has been no fundamental change 
uh, in Afghanistan in terms of women's rights. Things are about the same now as they were before. Yeah, it's a little better in, in the capital, but in, everywhere else in the country, uh, they've still the control of the warlords. Um, you would think that after, you know, the Russia, after a few years of trying to settle things there, they pulled out and said, look, we can't do anything here. Yeah. We should have taken a lesson there, don't you think? Yeah. Uh, well, the, uh, the, the, I think of something that we have to consider is that uh, when, when our uh, governments go to war, they can't tell the public the real reasons why they're going. They need the public on board. They need the complicity of the public. They need, need the, the support. public support. They right. need public support. When they want to launch a big war somewhere, they need public support because they need our money and they need our uh, they need cannon fodder. They need people to go out there and fight the war for them and they, they draw on us for that. Uh -huh. So they need the public support. Now, if they were to tell us, for example, with Iraq, the reason we're going to Iraq is because we want the oil and our, we have some corporations here in the United States that want to make more money. We want to have more profits. We want to make uh, we want to make a killing on on the oil, and we need that oil in, a, in Iraq. So we have to go to war. Now, if they were to say that, they wouldn't get our support, right? Yeah. So they have to make stuff up. They have to make the uh, they make enemy seem to be an incredible threat, and they have to lie. They have to deceive us. They have to trick us. Now, it's, it's this. I, I if you look at every major war. That the Americans have been involved with since the Mexican-American War, Spanish-American War, they've all the way through. There, I've, I examined about 20 of these major wars that the United States has been involved with over the past 150 years, and uh, in every single case, they they lied to the public in order to get public support for the wars. And another thing that we, uh, skipping back to Afghanistan, one of the reasons that the Canadian public thinks that it's a good idea for us to be there is because they see these images on TV of, 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 our, of our troops uh, doing development work, doing aid, you know, aid work. And working on the highway, too. Working on the highway, working on uh, delivering uh, desks to, to, you know, to schools, uh, school supplies to children. And, the, you know, there's, and I, I'm not saying this against our troops because it's not... Uh, this is uh, they're following orders they're doing it they're told the pro problem that the peace movement has is with the people that are the political uh, people uh, that are controlling and, and, and setting what the mission is about um, Doctors Without Borders who, which had been in Afghanistan for 25 years right. pulled out a few years ago uh -huh. why? because they five of their uh, member, five of their uh, people there in Afghanistan were killed. Yeah. And immediately they pulled out and they, they issued a press release saying the reason that we're pulling out is because we uh, have, because the military has been doing all this uh, assistance development work and there's a deliberate effort on the part of the military to confuse the efforts of the military with development assistance. And so people don't trust the, the people that are bringing them uh, school supplies and whatnot, they're associating that with, with the military. The military should not be involved with the development work, with uh, you know, bringing these much-needed supplies. They need to be brought there, mm -hmm. but not by the military. And then soon thereafter, 34 different development agencies in Afghanistan put out a joint press release saying the military should not be involved with development assistance work here. Mm -hmm. It's actually making our, our work harder. Well, what can, uh, and, and maybe both of you can answer this question or attempt to, and uh, uh, it's a question that always comes to my mind. Like, what can an average person like myself, an average Canadian, an average American do uh, to say to 
guys like uh, our Prime Minister, or President Bush, and other uh, other world leaders. Hey, let's stop the fighting and let's try to get along. Why are we spending all this money? Is there anything that the average guy and, and, and well, gal can do? I think the, the first thing that people have to do is educate themselves. And um, now that we have uh, this incredible revolution in, in communications and in research, the, the Internet is an incredible thing that's happened just over the last, uh, really, over the last 15 years. It's become, uh, it's become an incredible force. And people can do research and find out information and, and alternative sources of information. People could check out our, our um, website, for instance, uh, the Coalition to Oppose the Arms, where you just Google COAT. C-O-A-T, and you'll get it at the top of the list there. Uh, but um, so people have to educate themselves. And one of the, the, as I was saying about people, the government's lying and deceiving uh, the public and using these pretexts or excuses for war, we have to be able to see through those lies. And, the, and I, th I think that the peace movement, one of its main uh, tasks is really to be kind of a... Um, uh, on the front line, try, uh, like a first line of defense for the public in trying to identify what the lies are that, that, that we're being fed. Um, and we have to be able to say, here are the real reasons for, the, for wars. Jeremy. Yeah, well, I think the thing is, uh, I agree with you, Richard, that, that uh, I mean, we have to inform ourselves as to what the truth is. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also think that the, uh, um, that the whole... Uh, the whole of television and the whole of the 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 press is a, has turned itself into a right wing press. Uh, investigative journalism is at an all time low, um, as far as I'm concerned, and the public were not being told the truth. People aren't asking the right questions. Well, they're not. E well, no, people are. I find a lot of people know exactly what's going on, but you you, you uh, don't get enough of the investigative journalism. Well, that's who uh, I meant. The, the, the journalists aren't asking the right mm -hmm. questions, or are well, they? They're not being allowed to. Ah. Mm -hmm. uh, then I don't. Think, I, I mean, the spin doctors, or what I call them, the neocon artists, are superb mm -hmm. at their uh, mm -hmm. at, at their job. Mm -hmm. uh, but you see, we can't. I don't think we can survive. Uh, if we allow this to continue. I mean, we'll be living in an, or an Orwellian world uh, where there is correct think comes in, uh, where at the uh, community level, uh, communities are being destroyed by by essentially corporate activities and uh, herds of... It's just like Animal Farm. Uh, and uh, the only thing that makes uh, Animal Farm, which uh, Orwell wrote with the rise of totalitarianism in Russia... Uh, if you remember the story, the uh, the pigs take over again, and at the moment we have a whole, we have uh, herds of eco pigs going around, uh, you know, polluting our water, cutting our forests, uh, polluting our air, with no accountability to uh, um, to us. And then if there's any cleanup, we have to pay for it. Um, <clears throat> so that's uh, that's that's one thing. The second thing that 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 really irritates me is we're not being told the truth by our elected representatives. And I think we have to demand accountability from them. And I think we need to be told and consulted before some of these uh, these decisions are taken. Um, personally, I don't think we should be in Afghanistan either because I don't think we're defending Canada. Uh, I think we're fighting the American war for them, for the big oil. I don't think it's anything to do with democracy whatsoever. Well, there's a, an oil pipeline that's, that's been in the works in the planning uh, stages for several years now that will run through right through Afghanistan, in fact, through Kandahar, that will ship uh, oil and natural gas from the Caspian Sea through Turkmenistan, through mm -hmm. Afghanistan and Pakistan. And that's a... a 
multi-billion dollar uh, trans-Afghan pipeline project. And Khrushchev, after he retired from being prime minister, he went to Turkmenistan, met with the president of Turkmenistan. The whole purpose of their of his trip there was to meet this guy to talk about this pipeline. Uh, it's no coincidence that I don't think that it runs through Kandahar. <coughs> and Karzai, the president of uh, of Afghanistan, he used to be a, uh, a consultant for big American oil companies. And the U.S. Um, ambassador to Afghanistan, who's now the U.S. ambassador to Iraq, uh, uh, Khalilzad, uh, Zalmai Khalilzad, he used to be a big-time uh, oil executive. And, and so, I mean, the, the, the in, one of the main interests, purposes of this war is this pipeline through Afghanistan. It, it means that this, like, Caspian Sea oil, which is like the uh, second largest reserve of oil in the world after, after Saudi Arabia, uh-huh. um, that uh, it's very important that they put this pipeline in because that means that the, that all those resources uh, won't be going through Iran and they won't be going through Russia, and that's very important that they keep that money. That money really is what it is. Keep right. that money out of those two countries, yeah. which are the enemies of the of the United States. Still, even though Russia is supposedly an ally, mm-hmm. um, they are really not. So it really is, uh, as as many of us suspected over the years, uh, it's it's oil that's driving all this, basically. I think so, yeah. I think that's one of the reasons. I think there's also, uh, um, or at least uh, from my sources in the uh, in the Arabic world, um, the Arab uh, they're also extraordinarily conscious of uh, um, what's called the plan for Greater Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, they know that the, that somewhere in the works is a plan whereby the uh, state of Israel will uh, expand from the Mediterranean all the way through to the Euphrates. Mm. Um, that's which is a, a second uh, a dynamic to the current uh, mm. a real global realpolitik. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, the um, uh, th- those are the two, but the the, the 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 see the whole business comes back to greed again. Yep. Okay, and uh, I mean, if the world is is consuming, say, it's actually I think the real number is eighty three million barrels a day at the moment, or it's uh, let's use a hundred because it's going up to that shortly. Right. hundred million barrels of oil a day. Well, if if that goes up by ten dollars a barrel, well, then the oil companies get another ten dollars times a hundred. Million. million, which is what <laughs> a whole bunch of money. A lot of money. It's <laughs> a lot of money. And those oil companies don't have to pay all those billions for the uh, the expense of the war machine. That's right, which is financed by the U.S. taxpayer. Yeah. Yep. You see. Yep. I mean, if, if uh, uh, and and it's taking us off planet with the uh, with all the uh, carbon dioxide in the in the area as well mm-hmm. so you see the oil companies in the and the just moving for a second to the uh, to the um, uh, co2 uh, global warming debate mm-hmm. uh, you have to sum it up you have in one corner of the u.s you have al gore and uh, his magnificent movie an inconvenient truth Right. And there's a lot more scientific evidence come out even in the last few months on this uh, in, in one corner. And I listened to uh, James Kunstler when he came through uh, or I went to that show. Right. Uh, and there's a lovely cartoon uh, which, he put to, which he put up on the screen there which had George Bush holding a, a, a globe uh, like you see in a schoolroom. Right. And the caption to that cartoon was, this doesn't feel any warmer to me. <laughs> 
<laughs> and and what about uh, the Washington Post uh, columnist who who just came out with a book uh, a week or so ago, uh, talking about uh, the stories that uh, that Bush has been presenting us? Uh, the guy who broke Watergate wide open uh, way back when oh, during yeah. the Nixon oh, era. Word? Wood, yeah, Woodward, Woodward yeah. yeah. Like he's been on the speaking tour the last week or two on television and, you know, mm. talking about, wow, wait a minute here. Uh, look at all this information that we have yeah. now. So, but you see, by keeping going, the oil companies, I mean, they're taking ads in uh, Time magazine and all over the place saying that they, they can add ethanol and keep the, ga- the, the, the game going a bit longer. Uh, but you you look at the detail and the... the, the, the uh, the sea levels are supposed to rise by up to 44 feet, yeah. which puts New York underwater, all the ports underwater, some of the uh, uh, islands underwater, all the seaside resorts are uh, underwater. And you get global warming, which threatens climate, food production, uh, affects rainfall and the whole lot. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're facing a, a point where I think either we have to get sensible and... Uh, start using some of our capabilities which we have in abundance. I always like saying that, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that the planet may be finite, but our capabilities are not, mm. if we choose to use them. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's it's really up to us. And I sure every this is a very despondent uh, situation out there at the moment with Iraq and the Afghanistan and now South Korea and um, you know more military, more military. But this is insanity, you see. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there are there are lots of alternatives to this. But we it has to, in my view it has to come back to people. We can't leave it to them anymore because they've got the bit between their teeth and they're running with it. Mm. Um, I think it's up to us to bring some sense, common sense or uncommon sense, uh, common sense back to uh, Thomas Paine and the, the origins of the United States, um, bring principles back, bring the rule of law back, an international law, domestic law, bring back human rights and bring back sustainability. But how do we do it? He's, uh, he was asking, uh, you were asking, yeah, what, how? what is the average... What do I Jane do? and Joe blow on the street. What can we do about it? Right. Well, I, uh, I think we have to educate ourselves. One very important thing. That's the first thing we have to do. Uh-huh. And uh, the other, the, the very, other very important thing that we have to do is not vote for anybody who's going to continue this this madness. Mm-hmm. You have to examine what the po- political parties that you're voting for, what they stand for on these issues. Where do they stand on these issues? And just do not vote. Or a party, but try to get an answer from these these people when well, they're they you know have, when they're campaigning. That's true, and they they want to appear to be uh, one thing and then do the opposite, and which is something that I, I you know I started off with was talking about the the, uh, the the hypocrisy of our government and the duplicity in terms of you know pretending to be this great force for peace in the world, and and I think it just in. I, I just want to make sure that I that I point out that Canada is involved in the war in Iraq, and we have been all the way along, even though the average person on the street thinks that we're not involved, right? Okay, well, what about when uh, when we were asked to help out and Kretsche said, no, we're not going? Well, we're, but we, yeah, that's what he said, because he knew that that was, uh, that the Canadian public was opposed to the war, right. that most of the people were opposed to the war and didn't want Canada be in, to be involved. Uh-huh. But how many people know that our fleet, as our frigates, our multi-billion-dollar frigates, cost about ten billion dollars for these things. Escorted the U.S. warships right through the Persian Gulf, right up to Iraq, so that they could uh, do their shock and awe bombardment. Mm-hmm. Canadian Canada had war planners working at uh, in the Central Command with the United States. Only other countries that were doing that were Britain and Australia. We had. Uh, uh, military transport planes, Canadian ones that were helping transport uh, 
equipment to the to the United States. We were uh, had Canadian military personnel on the AWACS planes that helped direct the air war. Um, we had. Uh, so no, we sell them all this military equipment. Our Canada, Canada Pension Plan invests in all of the company, 16 out of the top 20 war industries in the world, including the ones that produced all of the major weapons delivery systems uh, used by the United States in, the, in, in, in Iraq. And we're immediately uh, after the war started, Cretchen was saying, well, you know, we're, gonna, we're perfectly willing to send our uh, military over there to, uh, to help train the Iraq, whatever Iraqi military comes uh, on board with, whatever mil- Iraqi military mm-hmm. is put in, installed by the U.S. And we also have the RCMP over there training Iraqi police still. And we had a Canadian military guy who was the number two in command in Iraq. He commanded uh, British, uh, Australian, and U.S. troops. Okay. 40,000 troops this guy was in command of. He was the number two guy in Iraq. Mm-hmm. He was a Canadian guy. Right. Wasn't that wasn't advertised? No, we no. didn't hear about that. No. We didn't hear about that. Plus, we also allowed all of these U.S. Uh, warplanes on their way back and forth from Iraq. We allowed them to fly over Canada. We allowed them to land in Newfoundland and refuel there. And uh-huh. when Colin Powell came out in March of 2003, when the war began, and said, "There's this coalition of the willing," and he gave us a list of 30 countries, he said, "There's this coalition of the willing," and Canada wasn't on the list. But he said, "There's also another list. It's another group." Uh, he didn't name it. But there were 15 countries that didn't want to be identified, that were helping, but they didn't want to be identified. And the U.S. ambassador to Canada, uh, Paul Salucci, in a speech in Toronto, right in, at the very beginning of the war, he said, Canada is helping us, he said, ironically, uh, Canada is helping us more than most of the countries that are on the list of the Coalition of the Willing. Wow. So Canada is deeply involved, and we just, but we don't even know it. We have about a minute to go. Yeah, I'd like to just add a, a couple of things to that. First of all, to go back to uh, Roosevelt's uh, New Deal and uh, um, <clears throat> on the money changes. You know, they've tried, but their efforts have been cast in a pattern of an outworn, outworn tradition. Um, uh, stripped, by the, stripped of the lure of profit by which... Sorry, I can't see you, but... To induce our people to follow their false leadership, they have resorted to exhortations. They know only the rules of a generation of self-seekers. They have no vision, and when there is no vision, the people perish. And what we can do, we have to come together in community. We have to form a new community. We have to join hands. We have to meet our neighbors. We uh, We have to decide what is important to us, what is important to our kids, to our future, our planet. Uh, our atmosphere, the food we eat, say no to uh, genetically modified foods, uh, uh, say yes to sovereignty, say yes to accountability from our elected representatives. There's a zillion things we can do, and I think maybe, this, uh, just to end, because I know we're really short of time, mm-hmm. running out of time here, um, there was a uh, uh, program on, uh, um, or call by the First Nations to ask everybody uh, throughout the planet... Uh, to, to take 15 minutes and to come to some decision as to what they thought they could do to help us save ourselves from ourselves. Let your voice be heard, basically, huh? Yeah. Jeremy, uh, as you said, the time has, uh, has run out, but I, I, I thank you for coming in and uh, spending uh, this hour with us. And Richard Sanders, thank you, oh, thank you. for joining us here on Chin. Uh, We will be back uh, next Thursday with Ernie Tannis and more of our ADR program. Our Arabic program is coming up just after the news at 1 here at Chin Radio at 97.9. Thank you.
Greater Ottawa and Gatineau's multicultural radio voice is Chin Radio, CJLL, Chin 97.9.